tonight we are talking about really the theme of this series. Our, our series, if you don't know, is Relating, Dating, and, Mary, and Mating. Relating, Dating, and Mating. A series on gospel-driven relationships. What does it mean for your relationships and the way you approach relationships to be driven, to be based upon the good news that Christians call the gospel? That's really what we're talking about tonight. The contention, sort of the central point tonight, is that there is something that is driving you toward relationships. But for so many people in our consumer culture, what's driving them to relationships and to seek after relationships are their own sense of neediness, their own sense of loneliness, maybe their own lust. Something is driving them, but it always comes down to it's about me, and what I can get. This is fundamentally the way relationships work in our culture. And if you were here last week, you understand that when sin entered the world, it made all relationships basically go this direction. Unless we fight against it, unless the power of God comes into our life to change it, we will inevitably be sort of default mode is to sort of pursue relationships for what we get out of them. And it's only gotten worse as our whole culture, everything is geared around you as the consumer and getting what you like and finding a church that meets your needs or finding friends that meet your needs, um, finding laundry detergent that works for you, right? Um, This is the way we pursue relationships, and it's made an absolute mess of relationships. That's what we're talking about tonight. And we want to talk about what does it mean to be driven instead of being driven by what we can get out of a relationship. What does it mean to be driven by the gospel? Now, there's a a passage in Scripture that I want us to look at. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're reading two verses, and it's on the top of your outline. So you can look there, or you can look in 2 Corinthians 5 if you want. Paul writes this, the Apostle Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, And therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Join me briefly in prayer, if you would. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to understand what is it about the love of Christ that should compel us and does compel us to approach relationships differently. What did Paul discover here? Help us, and then may you send your spirit to give us courage to embrace the gospel that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is driving you towards relationships? It's a very important question. It's one of those diagnostic questions that you need to be asking yourself because inevitably, eventually, every relationship you're in will become difficult. Every relationship that you're ever in will become difficult. And if what's driving you to be in the relationships you're in is is that they're giving you something that you really like, eventually you will reach the point where you begin to do a little cost-benefit analysis with your relationships. Any business majors in here? All the music business, do you understand cost-benefit analysis? You will inevitably come to a point in your life, you probably already have on a number of occasions, where you will weigh what this relationship is getting me, what am I getting from this, versus what it's costing me. Eventually, this person that you thought would be a great friend becomes needy. And you're like, oh, I don't know. I'm not really getting that much out of this anymore. 
and this person's gotten really needy, and it's, it's becoming difficult. Or eventually, you will find that this person doesn't bow to my every whim anymore, and that's not so great. I kind of enjoy being worshipped, and it's not working anymore. Eventually, every relationship will run into a difficult patch, and you will begin to do a cost-benefit analysis. It inevitably happens. It even happens in our relationship with God. I talk to people all the time who are doing this sort of thing. They're like, well, you know, I pursued God for this reason, and it kind of got me what I wanted, but not exactly. He really did a lot of things that I don't think were very fair, and he didn't give me a lot of things that I thought he definitely should have given me. My own story is that. I think I shared that with you a little bit last week. I really pursued God initially in ninth grade because I thought it would get me friends, and it never worked out the way I thought it should have. And it gets you to the point of a real crisis of faith. God isn't, quote-unquote, working. Have you ever heard anybody talk about that? Have you ever thought that yourself? It all gets down to this. We're pursuing relationships for what we can get from them. Uh, You ask yourself, eventually you'll have to ask yourself, is this relationship worth the cost? Is it worth the cost? And the cost might be lots of different things. The cost might be, well, this person is requiring me to to be there for them. And that's really interfering with all these other things I'd really like to be involved in in my life. I can't really, you know, practice 10 hours a day if I have relationships. So I guess I'm going to get rid of relationships. Or, you know, this person is actually asking me to, to reveal my heart. This is my issue. This is what me ask my wife. This is always my, the cost for me that I always shrink back from is is opening up myself and becoming vulnerable. You know, sometimes you're going to face this question of, is it really worth it? Is what I'm going to get out of this relationship really worth putting myself at risk for that kind of pain? Is it really worth investing that kind of time when there's no guarantee of what this will work out to be in the future? At some point, maybe soon, Maybe 10 years after you've been married, you will probably reach a point of saying, maybe the cost exceeds the benefits. And then you're in deep trouble. In other words, if you've been pursuing relationships for what they get you, eventually you will reach a point where you decide it's just not worth it. And, you know, if that's not what happens to you, then probably the opposite will happen to you. And it's this. Somebody who's relating to you may begin to wonder if you're worth the effort. See, here's the the rub. As soon as you take stock of your relationships and you realize how I'm constantly auditioning people to see if they're worthy to be my friend, to see if they really are going to give me what I think I need, if you you begin to, to see that in yourself, then what happens next, and this is really scary, is you begin to wonder how many people that I think love me and care about me are really just using me for what I give them. And what's going to happen when I can't convince them anymore that I'm worth it? And I'm sad to say that I suspect that some of you have already known that pain. Our world is such a mess because everybody pursues relationships for what we can get out of them. And there's not very many relationships that are going to stand up to the cost-benefit analysis because relationships are messy, they disappoint us, they bring great 
pain and shame into our lives. And if there's not something bigger driving you to relationships than what you can get out of it, relationships are going to to never really be what they should be for you or for our community. You see, I think the fact is what we fear so much, if we're willing to admit it, is that the people whose love we value most may eventually decide that we're not worth it. And it may be communicated to you in subtle ways. It may be communicated to you in very overt ways. David, David Brooks, one of my favorite columnists, he writes for the New York Times, he has a book called Bobos in Paradise, kind of understanding the culture we live in. I think some of y'all are using it for class, right? Lindsay is. Uh, it's a great book, great book. He says that for, for people, people like y'all, your, really your generation, life is a continual aptitude test. That everything you're involved in, every relationship you're involved in, you're constantly being auditioned. And you're just one step away from screwing up something and people moving on and finding other relationships. That's a really sobering thing to realize about the world that we live in. And realize this. This isn't just the way we relate to people. This spills over into the way we relate to God. I will tell you this. Religious people, religious people seem to have this common problem of feeling like it's up to them to convince God that they're worth loving. Religious people, this is the reason that they have so little joy. So, so little joy in Christian churches is because so many people have this wrong-headed view of relationships and then it spills over into the way they think about their relationship with God and they feel like it's up to them to keep God smiling at them. And that's the biggest recipe for despair I know in your life. So what are we going to do? I mean, do you understand the world that that you grew up in. Nobody likes being auditioned, do they? That's why dating is such a drag, isn't it? Dating, it, it's sort of like, it feels like you're being auditioned at the same time you're trying to be open and authentic and actually get to know somebody. It's a mess. We'll talk about that later in the semester. Um, but for some of us, for many of us, I think, this kind of being auditioned for relationships is, is, is basically most of the relationships we know. You know, in 1975, Ann Landers, do y'all, are y'all old enough to remember Ann Landers? She used to write a regular column, like an advice column, like Dear Abby and Ann. They were actually sisters, um, Ann and Abby. Well, Ann Landers, in 1975, asked a question in her column. She said, if you had to do it all over again, would you still have children? In 1975, 50,000 people responded to her survey. 70% said No. said no, they would not have children if they had to do it all over again. Do you think their children picked up on that? I think they did. When were were your parents living? They were probably, what, 8, 10 years old? They were probably the children that Ann Lander's survey was talking about. Right? In 1979, there was actually a very popular movie, and this came out when most of your parents were in high school, called Kramer vs. Kramer. Anybody seen Kramer vs. Kramer? It really, you know, when I, when, I, when I quote you this line from the movie, you're going to be like, this is unbelievable. But this was a very popular movie. Very popular movie. Meryl Streep starred in it. And it was about a woman, Meryl Streep played this mother, who decided to leave her husband and her eight-year-old little boy so that she could find herself. 
And it wasn't seen as a bad thing in the movie. That's what you need to understand. It was seen as a liberating thing. She writes this in a letter in this movie to her little boy. Listen to these words. Writing to her little boy. I have gone away because I must find some interesting things to do for myself in the world. Everybody has to, and so do I. Being your mommy was one thing, but there are other things. That movie came out when your parents were in high school. Do you understand the mess that our world is in with regard to relationships? The fact is, relationships are dangerous and they're uncertain. One of, my, one of these songs that just haunts me all the time is Patty Griffin's song, Christina. You know the song about Christina Onassis, at one point the richest girl in the world. Ended up, I think I heard Patty introduce this song once saying that maybe she'd been married and divorced four times, eventually died of a drug overdose. But this song, Christina, Patty Griffin has this, this amazing line. She says, if you had the real thing, talking about love, if you had the real thing, how would you tell? Liars can say it all just as well. You sure you want to pursue relationships? See, if you're going to pursue relationships for what you can get out of it, you're going to be looking for guarantees. Trust me. But it just doesn't work that way. And so you may try it for a while until you get hurt enough. And by the time you're in your mid-20s, you probably won't want to have anything to do with relationships anymore. And maybe you, by the time you're in your mid-30s, you may decide to finally get married like I did. This is not what I want for you. This is not what God wants for you. He wants you to call you to something bigger. And the fact is, the gospel is that thing that is so much bigger, that calls us to be about something so much bigger than just what's in it for me. And I would argue, I would contend, that it's the only thing, it's the only thing that can make relationships work the way God intended in this world. Relationships in our world are so fragile when we pursue them for what we can get or when other people pursue us for what they can get from us. You will never be the kind of friend that you want to be and you should be if your relationships are based on what you can get because you will abandon people eventually. Some point there will be a cost that will cause you to abandon people. You will never find the kinds of friends that you need if they're all pursuing you based on this cost-benefit analysis kind of approach. That's the mess we're in. And I want you to understand this is so far removed from what God intended when he made mankind. So the question is, how can the Christian community be a true countercultural place that lives differently with regard to relationship. And that's what Paul's getting at here. I know this is a long introduction, but I want, you to, I want you to see. Where's the connection with this passage? 2 Corinthians 5. It's this. Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. But if you keep reading, you find out that it, doesn't, it didn't always compel him. At some point in his life, something else was driving him with regard to the way he related to other people. But now, Christ's love compels him. And that's what we're going to look at. You see, the only way that our relationships can actually begin to work is if they're driven by something bigger than mere self-interest. And that's exactly what Christianity proclaims is possible. Christianity proclaims a love that pursues you not based on what you can bring to the team, not based upon what you bring to the table, not based upon how wonderful you are and what a great person you would make in the kingdom. Christianity proclaims that God pursues people because he loves people, not because of anything in them. 
And that changes everything. You see, Christianity proclaims that God loved us more than we could ever ask or imagine. There's an amazing verse in the book of Ephesians where Paul says that his love is bigger than we could ask or imagine. And I always love pointing this out. There's a lot of creative people in this room. There's a lot of creative people at Belmont. Don't ever limit God's love to what you can imagine because God says his love is even greater than what you can ask or imagine. You see, God does not love us because we complete him. God does not love us because he needs us or because he needs us on his team. Because he's up there wringing his hand, wondering how all the work is going to get done unless he can recruit you because you're so wonderful. That's such a demeaning picture of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible loves because he purposed to love a people in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or as it says in Romans 9, before you could do anything good or bad, God set his love upon you. It's the only love that you will know that never, ever auditioned you to find out if you were worthy. If it had, it wouldn't have never come to you, right? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, has this wonderful place where he says, faith is this rare plant, this rare plant, that if you find it growing in your heart, you know that somebody must have planted it there because it would never have gotten there by itself. Christianity proclaims that there is a love that seeks you because this love sought you before you sought it. As John says, the Apostle John in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. As Jesus told the disciples when he called them, you did not choose me, I chose you. Over and over again, this is what grace is all about. Wonderful place in Ephesians 2, and I put this on your outline. Paul says this, when we were dead in sins, we were dead in sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. The Bible's definition of grace is God taking dead people and making them alive. It is not God looking out there and seeing all these wonderful potential people for his team and saying, I'll give this person a helping hand and, and they'll be a great helper for my, for my kingdom. It's, yeah, sure, God wants you to serve in his kingdom without a doubt, but he didn't save you He didn't save you because he needed you. He saved you because he purposed to love you because of his love. And you're just going to have to get used to that if you're going to live in the kingdom of God. This is the good news, you see, that brings security, real security, because it proclaims a love that is so different from every other relationship. It's the only love you'll ever find that loves you, not because of what you can offer. God loves his people because he loves them. And I know that some of you have tasted this through good friendships, through good parents. But it's just an echo of the way God loves us. This is what Christianity proclaims, that there is a love that's bigger and that can actually change the way we love in this world. Again, look at the way Paul describes it. If you look back at the beginning where I put that verse down there, he says that there is one who has died for us all. And that's a very important verse, word there in verse 14. Paul basically saying that there is someone who has taken the death we deserve because of our sin. Christ has died for us. He's taken the death we deserve because of our sin and rebellion against the, against the Creator God. But notice Paul goes on and says that in this death, we all died. In other words, this death substitutes for our death. He died for us so that in him all of us have died. What that means is this death is not just a model. Jesus didn't just come to say, look, if you really love people, you'll die for them. Jesus died as a substitute, his death in the place of our death. It's a great old hymn by Horatius Bonar. 
unfortunate name, but a great hymn writer. Horatius Bonari said this, Upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. If you want to know, in essence, what does it mean to be a Christian, that's it. Upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. That's what Paul's saying Jesus did. He died, all of us died in him. He died for us. But then he goes on to say the reason or what this drives us to. Look at verse 15. He says that Christ died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. So you see, there's a, there's a point. Christ's death for us is to drive us to live no longer for ourselves, which means that until this death broke into Paul's life, he was living for himself. There is a love that broke in. Paul did not do the dying. Christ died for him in his place, and it broke into his life, and he now says that this love compels me. Where in the past, I was driven, I was driven to, to live for myself and to use relationships for myself, for what they could give me. But now, something has broken in that compels me to live not for myself, but for Christ but for Christ. So you see, rather than being driven by what he can get, Christians are to be driven by what has taken hold of them. That's the difference. Rather than being driven by what we can get, we are instead to be driven by what has taken hold of us. Christianity changes your basis for life. When the love of Christ has grabbed you, it changes the way you relate to other. That's what that's what Paul's saying here. One of my favorite illustrations of this, the movie Chariots of Fire. You guys see Chariots of Fire? How many of you have seen this? Okay, you all know the basic story. There's a, a, a runner, Eric Little. He's a Scottish runner who uh, also has sort of his nemesis, is uh, another writer named Harold Abrams. At, at, each, at, at a point in the movie, each of the runners, and they're like Olympic sprinters, right? Each of them has to talk or is given an opportunity to say why they run. And the contrast is amazing. Harold Abrams, when he's asked, why does he run? He says, I run because I have 60 seconds in which to justify my existence. Eric Little, when he's asked why he runs, he said, and he's struggling with whether he should go ahead and go be a missionary to China or whether he should compete in the Olympics. And he says, God has made me for China, but God has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So the question is, are you pursuing relationships because it's the only forum, it's the only stage upon which you can justify your existence? Or are you running, are you pursuing people because the love of Christ compels you because you know that when you pursue people, even difficult people, the love of Christ gets unleashed in your life. Do you know, um, do you know why the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea? Do you know? Because the River Jordan runs into it and nothing runs out. And the water just sits there. Good water comes into that, to that sea. But it just sits there and it bakes in the sun until all the moisture boils off and you're left with like 60% salt. Nothing can live there. Christians who hear the good news of the gospel but never put it into practice, never risk by loving people who are difficult to love, and everybody's difficult to love, okay, Become like the Dead Sea. Become like the Dead Sea. 
The Bible makes this point over and over again. Something is compelling you. The love of Christ is to spill over into your relationships. Well, one of my favorites is this in Romans 12.1. And here's the point. The, what the, the Bible, do you realize this? A lot of Christians, people who've grown up in church, don't realize this. The Bible never, ever gives bare commands. The Bible never just tells you to do something without rooting it in the character of God or the work of God. It's always do this because of who he is. Do this because of what he's done for you. Which means that from the Bible's perspective, from God's perspective, it's very important that there be a connection between the gospel and the way you live. Everything is connected. Something is driving you. Something is compelling you to be in relationships. If it's the gospel, then it looks like this. Look, Romans 12, 1 says this, and I put it on your paper. Therefore, this is Paul after 11 chapters of talking about what God has done for us in Christ in the book of Romans. He gets to the sort of the application part, and he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, and actually the NIV says mercy, but in the Greek it's plural, in view of God's mercies, the 11 chapters of mercies I've been discussing, in view of all that stuff, Offer your bodies, your whole being, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Or some translations say your logical or reasonable act of worship. In the Greek word, there can be translated either way. In other words, if the Bible is true, if Jesus did what the Bible says he did, then the only reasonable way to live is not for yourself, but as a thank offering for him. The sacrifice that's talked about here is not the sacrifice where you're trying to earn God's pleasure. It's the sacrifice that in the Old Testament was called the thank offering. When you realize what Christ has done for, for you, you want to give back. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And the greatest of these commands are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see that when you understand the love that God has poured out upon you, it compels you to want to bring that love to other people. How can you keep it to yourself? And when the gospel changes the basis of how you live, here's the good news. It's setting you free to be what you were meant to be. Listen, Jesus of Nazareth lived the most pure, actually human life that was ever lived. And his whole life was about serving others. He said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Do you want to know what you were made for? Do you want to know what it means to be human? It means not to live for yourself, but to live to serve. And Jesus, if, if, if you didn't pick that up, he, he made it more explicit. When he said, no one, no one can, can, can really live or to bear fruit unless they fall to the ground and die. Unless you die to living for yourself, you can't be fully human. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. The only way to be fully human is to be compelled by the love of God. Jesus came not just to save us and take us to heaven. He came to change the way we live so that we would no longer live for ourselves but live for others. This is what God created us for in the first place. And Jesus came to restore that, to make that actually possible in the here and now. And this is true freedom. We need to fight against the lies that tell us that the best and most reasonable way to live is to live for yourself. Actually, it's just the opposite. The only reasonable way to live is to live as a living sacrifice. Any other way you try to live will eventually break down. 
As Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, likes to say, if you break God's laws, they break you. Because the one who made you, made you in a particular way. And you can try and fight against what you were made for. You can try and take all of your relational potential that God has given you and you can try and use it to build your own kingdom, to puff yourself up, to make you feel good about yourself, but it will always spoil on you because God did not create your ability to be in relationship so that you could be satisfied by it. He didn't make you for that. And if you try to live for that, it will eventually spoil on you. It has to. But listen, let me tell you, Jesus said in John chapter 8, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And freedom, freedom, guys, is being what you are meant to be. You know, if you, were, if you go on our camping trip and you're out there fishing in this, this pond that's stocked with catfish and you're sitting there and you got your line in the water and all of a sudden the fish jumps up out of the water and proclaims, I'm free, I'm free. And then he keels over because he, he can't breathe. It's ridiculous. Christians, people, human beings who think that they're free because they won't listen to what God says about how he made them to live, are fooling themselves. It's not freedom. It's slavery. You just don't realize it. Living for yourself is slavery. Christ came to set you free from that. And nothing can set you free to live and to love as risky and scary as it is, like the security that comes from knowing that you did nothing to earn God's love. Therefore, you can do nothing. You can never fail so thoroughly that you could lose God's love. Therefore, you can pursue relationships that are difficult. I'm closing this up. Tim Keller, I sent this little quote out there. And I think this is so powerful. I, I won't read it now. It's on your, your sheet here. But there's, there, there's so many different ways of pursuing relationships, even within Christian circles. And, and he has a great thing. I want to I jump to and conclude with this little thing in Galatians chapter 2. And I have this passage at the very end. I won't read the whole passage. But there's this fascinating story where the Apostle Paul confronts the Apostle Peter. It happened, it happened in, uh, in this area in Galatia where Peter, Peter had a difficult time realizing that God loved people who weren't Jews, okay? He was a racist. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Paul, God finally like gave him an amazing vision in, in the book of Acts, I think it's in chapter 10, saying, look, I don't just love Jews. I love Gentiles. And Peter finally came around to it. But he had a hard time holding on to that understanding. And there was a point at which he was in this area where there were a lot of non-Jews there. One of the things, Jews did not eat at the same table with non-Jews in the ancient world. Because if they ate with people who weren't ceremonially clean, then they might get unclean and not be able to worship. So they had very, very kind of strict regulations. We're not going to eat with you because you may not be clean. But when Peter came to understand the gospel and came to understand that God wanted his love to go to all the nations of the earth, he got over that um, sort of stigma and he began to not only welcome people, but he began to give expression to the welcome of the gospel by eating with people who weren't like him, eating with Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish. But at some point, there were some Jews that showed up in this town and they they, they kind of were like, oh, I don't know about you, Peter. What are you doing eating with these Gentiles? And Peter shrunk back and quit eating with those Gentiles and only would eat with the Jews. Now, when Paul found out about this, he was incensed. But what's fascinating here in Galatians 2 is that Paul does not go up to Peter and say, Peter, you're a racist. He doesn't. Look what he says. It's in um, verse 14 of the, the thing right here at the very end of the outline. 
Paul says this, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Here's the the point I want you to get is this first part. Paul analyzes what's going on. You could say it's racism, but Paul says you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. In other words, your relationship with these people is not being driven by the gospel. It's being driven by something else, right? See, this this is the key to understanding. That means... When your relationships are not what they should be, you have to think back, how is the gospel calling me to live? If you are living for relationships to get your own sense of self-worth, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And what does Paul do to Peter? He doesn't just say you're a racist. He says, look, he says, it's basically, you know, in, in kind of convoluted language, I admit, and if I had more time, I'd explain fully. But what he basically says is, remember the gospel, Remember the gospel, that you've been welcomed, not because of what you did, but because God's love pursued you. Don't now make these Gentiles feel like they have to measure up to earn God's love. If by your life you're communicating that they need to earn God's love, you're actually denying the very gospel itself. You're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. Here's the challenge. What does it mean for your relationships to act or to live in line with? with the truth of the gospel. What, what does it look like? Examine your relationships. Think about your relationships. Ask Christ to help you see what is it, why is it that, you, that it's so difficult to live the way Christ wants? Is it fear? Is it selfishness? We're going to pursue this and pick this up next week. Um, let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you gave up perfect relationship with your Father to die on a cross so that we could never be forsaken no matter what a mess we are with relationships. Lord, I, I think about this, this teaching from tonight and I just am ashamed that I don't live this out better. That I'm so driven by wanting people to like me, by wanting to do a good job. And Lord, instead of wanting to see your kingdom come and your, your strength made perfect in my weakness. Pray, Lord, that you would help all of us to understand that there is a different way to live. And may we reach out and cry out for your help and for your power. Cry out for the gospel to impact us in such a way that it sets us free. We don't need to live for ourselves because you lived and died for us. And our future is settled. Our acceptance is secure. Therefore, we can focus on others. I pray, Lord, you would set us free and do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.